and welcome to the third episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature podcast. I'm Christian Kerr. And I'm Vicky Riley. And we are carrying on our travels along the highways and byways of Scottish literature, sponsored by Berlin Limited, one of Scotland's leading independent publishers, as we celebrate our 25th anniversary year. Mm-hmm. Today, we're staying in Edinburgh, but away from the cosy environs of West Newington House, where the good ship Berlin resides, and we're going down to the mean streets of Leith <laughs> and into the heart of a pop culture phenomenon. We're talking Irvin Welsh's train spotting. Choose life. So Vicky and I will be talking about arguably Scotland's most modern classic, a novel that still looms large in modern Scottish culture, even though it's been more than 20 years since it was published. Later, we'll be talking to Noi Rihi, Scotland's favourite avant-garde noisemakers, as the skinny describe them, uh, and they are in the form of Kevin Williamson and Michael Peterson. Yeah. Michael will also be performing a few of the poems that were published in his Polygon debut collection, Play With Me. Uh, He'll give us a little preview from his forthcoming collection, Oyster, which we'll be publishing in August. Yes, very good, very exciting. So um, we can probably say there's been a bit of a a, a fuss about Trainspotting again this year with the release of the the film sequel, T2 Trainspotting, and I suppose it's probably... There's been a lot of... um, nostalgia a lot of 90s nostalgia going on at the moment a lot of you know this generation's journalists are doing lots of looking back and seeing what train spotting meant to them and um just having a look at uh, the whole zeitgeist of um train spotting um i we were we were both of us actually we were probably a little bit too young to be caught up completely in the in the phenomenon, um, we were both still at school when the book That's came out, right. and yep. um, and the film as well. We were still at school, and even well for me, even at that time, I was more obsessed with sixties culture. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was in my Beatles um, bubble, so I was aware of Train Spotting, but um, I wasn't that affected by it. I wasn't yeah. totally like this is this is the thing for me. I think we were at the kind of age where we were just sort of getting what was cool. And I tried so hard <laughs> to understand train spotting, not in any other not in any other being cool situation. Yeah, so I, I didn't read the book um on publication and I didn't even see the film in the cinema as well. I, I saw it either on video or DVD at some point. I can't remember when DVDs came out. <laughs> Me neither. So, um, it was in the it was in, I in think the it house. was in the very late nineties. Yeah. Um but I did see the film first and I do remember when I was a student and I was working at Virgin Megastores that that was when the, the video came out to buy and I remember the front of the store display that we did and it had the book and the soundtrack and the poster that was everywhere with, and the book had the famous quote on the front about um, how Trainspotting deserved to sell more copies in the Bible mm. which always stuck in my head because I always just thought now that's something to put on the front of a book <laughs> I wish more reviewers would say that about other books. Yeah. <laughs> it really tickled me. But I, even then, even when I was a student and I was, you know, selling all the train spotting paraphernalia, I didn't read it um, until after I'd graduated and I was working in a bookshop. And by that time, you know, I was reading more than what my reading lists were. And so I was just gorging on everything. And I thought, mm. I better read this train spotting book. <laughs> Yeah, I read it in the film adaptation that was like orange. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything was orange, <laughs> yeah. and there was the cheese life quote everywhere, yeah. just yeah. everywhere, like 
written out in massive block Helvetica letters. Yeah. And on people's bedroom walls. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I really liked how uh, the T2, the Trainspotting 2 film, quoted the orange everywhere. That yeah, was just like and the Helvetica. Little, yeah, all these just orange bits. <laughs> it was cool. Um, so, yeah, I definitely saw the film first. Um, and uh, my predominant memory of uh, seeing train spotting is really not so much any kind of teenage rebellion or especially relating to <laughs> the book but really it was about like how transgressive my going to the film at all was um, <laughs> because it was rated 18 and I was only 14 wow I would never have got in <laughs> see tall um, and I went with a friend and she had older brothers and uh, she was far more streetwise than me and I spent most of the time thinking during this film that we would be caught and booted out of the cinema <laughs> because it was like 2pm on a day in the Easter holidays and there was no one else there they were probably relieved for your custom <laughs> yeah exactly but I didn't get that at 14 so that said though there were uh, so many iconic images and sequences in the film that stuck in my mind and that really lodged there like mm. over the last 20 years um, all of that wallpaper all of those different wallpapers <laughs> I think there was like some cool green wallpaper but then all the trains um, the baby yeah. and then this absolutely iconic Princess Street run down Princess yeah. Street down the pavement my, um, my um, best friend's brother was in the background at John Menzies well, there we go yeah. reflecting off on those panels <laughs> yeah. that's like I think that's immortalised John Menzies um, <laughs> yeah. forever um, yeah and then you know the bit where Renton comes out of the toilet oh god um, <laughs> anyway I after seeing the film I went and read the book um, on a summer family holiday uh, which was spent you know on the beautiful tranquil Hebridean island of Colonsay lovely it wasn't really at all rebellious <laughs> Although I think I thought I was probably being cool. Anyway, <laughs> you I, are cool. I enjoyed it. Um, but I didn't really have thoughts about the book um, beyond how I'd never read a book like it before um, and how it was cool to see the sound of the language that you heard in the street spelled out on the page. Mm. Um, it was dead easy to understand too, partly because I heard that language um, around me growing up. Um uh, and um, yeah, I found it easy to understand. Um, apart from like, there was this random character called Ken who kept coughing up Can all I the time. Ken? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he never seemed to do anything, but you know, he was there all the time. <laughs> yeah, I loved Trainspotting too when I first read it. Like, I, I think maybe it, I, it it really affected me when I read it, and I kind of was like, why have I not read this book before? Um, and even though I'd, I'd already seen the film and I knew, you know, you would read the, the film familiar bits um, that you knew from the film. But I remember even getting quite emotional reading it, which, you know, I'm going to admit here, shed a few tears <clears throat> or just filled up in a, in a sort of... I, I, I can't even describe... I, I, I don't know. You, I mean, you can't... Do you think that it's a little bit about... Um seeing a world that you know so well represented on the page like creating a particular kind of emotional resonance maybe yeah maybe um but also just the it's an emotional book you know the characters yeah. really get to you in, a, in the book in a way that they don't in the film um, and it, it was especially the the Stevie chapter, mm. uh, Victory to New Year's Day. That is 
on New Year's Day. That's the one that that I remember really having uh, um, filling up at, and and I've never read the book since then. But I always continued to remember this that Stevie chapter and 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 how how I was when I was reading it. And I'd read porno as well, and I was a bit disappointed in in that mm-hmm. one. So I kind of just you know sort of left Irvine Welsh there and so I've, I've actually been quite nervous to to go back and reread Trainspotting now what like what nearly 20 years on oh god not quite 20 yeah, years not quite 20, yeah not quite 20 <laughs> just years just a mere decade yeah but I'm still I was still like oh what how how is this experience going to be rereading yeah. Trainspotting when well I... so before we talk about the book yes. um let's get in some facts yes um and uh, it does feel a bit strange doing this for a living writer <laughs> I know. <laughs> but here are some facts about Irvin Welsh. <laughs> he was born in Edinburgh in the 1950s. Uh, he grew up in Muir House and in Leith. And after leaving school, he headed to London and was part of the punk scene there, playing in bands called The Pubic Lice and Stairway 13. I love that, The Pubic Lice. That's a brilliant name for a band. Um, <laughs> he was arrested for a series of petty crimes, but after receiving a suspended sentence, he studied computing and worked for Hackney Council. He moved back to Edinburgh in the 1980s, uh, where he worked for Edinburgh Council in their housing department. Around the early 90s, he was part of a loose group of writers, including Duncan MacLean, Alan Warner, Gordon Legg, Paul Reekey, James Meek, and good, Kevin Williamson. Good names, good names. Parts of Trainspotting were published in Kevin Williamson's Rebel Inc. magazine, as well as leaflets published by Clock Tower Press. It was Duncan MacLean that recommended Trainspotting to Robin Robertson, who was then the editorial director of Secker and Warburg, and he agreed to publish it, even though he thought that it really wasn't going to sell. Ah, oh, hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so reading Trainspotting again after all these years, um, I still really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, so there was nothing to be scared of, really. <laughs> but though I suppose enjoy is probably the wrong word because, I mean, there are bits to enjoy, you know, the rush of the language and the energy of it and... I mean, you you can't deny there's lots of really dark, dark humour that really makes you laugh. But, you know, you also can't deny that it's really, really grim, really, really sad and really angry as well. Mm -hmm. I quite like the anger of it. But yeah, still, it totally stood up to me. And even I didn't cry this time round. And again, you know, because some of the scenes are so familiar, rereading them again... You know, like the suppositories and the speed job interview and Spud's mess in the bed and all that kind of thing. It was when you're reading those that it, it felt to me like you were reading sort of set piece moments, like yeah. when you go to a film and there's a car chase, or when you go or a fight scene, and you're right, kind right. of like, like, oh, we're in this bit now. Yeah, yeah, and and you're kind of like but can we get back to the story kind of thing because actually really the strength of Trainspotting to me anyway is that I wanted to get back to the less familiar sections and the less familiar scenes which mm-hmm. I think is the the heart of the book yeah because for me it's been a, a while since I saw the first film uh, Trainspotting um, and the, obviously that scene with the suppositories <laughs> in the toilet is iconic um uh, and the way that the angle of the shots in there um sort of like really makes the most disgusting public toilet <laughs> in the world into a throne um is just 
beautiful, sort of, in this weird way. Yeah. Um, but when I reread the scene in the novel, um, I was really impressed at how Welsh can make your stomach turn oh, on the page, too. God, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you can be rereading the book thinking about how it's into it's now overladen as it were by the film you know you, it's really hard to picture a Mark Renton that's not Ewan McGregor but um I really felt that that description of um what he's in a Ladbrokes public toilet yeah. I think a toilet in the back of a bookie yeah um you know is probably worse than the film <laughs> which is really so arty that it that it almost maybe just kind of sanitizes <laughs> that scene I mean that might be to put too fine a point on it but oh yeah mm-hmm. but, and for all those recognizable scenes that everybody can can talk about to, it's the interior monologues of the characters that that make the book still stand up the yeah. the moments where the of their reflection on themselves and their friends and their lives and their own realizations and their own self-awareness that gives the book its real power and real sadness and real anger as well like it's really brilliant at presenting um how the things that happen to the characters you know the 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 storyline, if you want to call it storyline, yeah. and how they create their own myths from that while they're doing it at the same time. And then those flashes of recognition afterwards where they, where they recognise what they're doing and that how even the telling of the story is a performance and so that they're... Yes, the because way it's a story that they all know and they've all told yeah. a million times. And so that therefore they're, the way that they live as a mm. performance mm. as well and and who they really... <clears throat> set against who they really are and... And then, and, and so that's that's really where the like the awfulness comes. Like, there's a great, um, obviously one of the, again one of the most <laughs> iconic moments is the, the scene where Begbie throws the glass, the glass. over the gallery. Yeah, but that pub. whole chapter is really great mm-hmm. at the at laying bare that sort of realization of the lies that you tell yourself yeah um, and the lies that you tell yourself to carry on getting along with people yeah as well <laughs> we'll come back to that yeah um, so i'm just going to read a bit from the the glass i found myself lying to her to justify begby's behavior fucking horrible i just couldn't handle her outrage and the hassle that went with it it's, it's it was easy to lie as we all did with Begbie in our circle. A whole Begbie mythology had been created by our lies to each other and ourselves. Like us, Begbie believed that bullshit. We played a big part in making him what he was. Myth. Begbie has a great sense mm. of humour. Reality. Begbie's sense of humour is solely activated at the misfortunes, setbacks and weaknesses of others, usually his friends. Myth. Begbie is a hard man. Reality. I would not personally rate Begbie that highly in a square goal without his assortment of Stanley knives, baseball bats, knuckle dusters, beer glasses, sharpened knitting need- needles, etc. Myself and Mace cunts are too shy scared to test this theory, but the impression remains. Tommy once exposed some weaknesses in Begbie in a square goal. Gave him a good run for his money, did Tam. Mind you, Tommy's a tidy cunt, and Begbie, it has to be said, came out the better of the two. Myth. Begbie's mates like him. Reality. They fear him. That's amazing. <laughs> and really well read. And that passage as well is loads of other passages. It's also brilliant at the the tensions and the undercurrents and friendship and particularly the friends that you've known all your life. And so actually they're more than friends. They're like family. And that 
push-pull of the comfort of them, the need of them, but also the, the conservatism of staying with what you know and the desire to escape and to be somebody else and you want to remake yourself and then the feeling that you can't or that or that you you won't be allowed to. Um, yeah, they say the sort of push and pull of that. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's and it's so horrible and real and recognisable to everyone. I think mm-hmm. it's a, and and even if the context of how of how Welsh is exploring these issues of friendship and the push and pull of the familiar against setting out on your own, so it might not be universal with like being a junkie and leaf, but those themes are absolutely universal. And that is what makes Trainspotting more than just, you know, a novel about junkies and their escapades. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, like the sheer sort of eloquence of the patter you know, <laughs> that they all have as well as these archetypes, like in the passage that you just read that, you know, myth and reality and story and everything. There's, it's it is a completely fully formed world mm. um and like recognizably a literary one as well um yeah the ties that run between the characters that are really deep yeah. um Renton talks a lot I love it when they talk back about the school days <laughs> and Renton talks about his first day at primary school and he when the teacher said to him you'll be sitting next to Francis Begbie today yeah. um see the sliding doors moment <laughs> um anyway um yeah but underneath it all they stay together and keep circling circulating around each other yeah um and they just sort of accommodate each other in order to to rub along these interconnections of course have also and like this fully formed world have Mm. allowed Irvin Welsh to revisit this almost as if it's like a superhero universe he's written the sequel porno um which provided some of the material though not all for transporting to um and then in a prequel skag boys um and most recently in 2016 uh the blade artist which seems to have produced a californian begbie yeah i've not i've not read that one yet but i am i mean i will because i'm so curious as to how you rehabilitate begbie but I think the Stevie chapter that I mentioned earlier is probably like reading it again. I remembered why it was one mm-hmm. of my favourites. Um, just that the relationship with Stella and um, the potential that 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 um, gave to to, to Stevie um, is of his chance of escape and to make to make see he's got the chance to make himself anew and in a way that the others don't at all in the throughout the whole book and he allows himself to be vulnerable and to be honest in a way that the others aren't as much and particularly in 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 that chapter and for the bulk of that chapter he's got his feet in both worlds he's not quite one he's not quite the other and he can't enjoy the party or his friends and and the tension of the new year I mean we've probably all been to house parties where you know those You're drunken just... house parties where you know it can just turn the atmosphere can turn on a pin yeah. because of the booze consumed and all that kind of thing <laughs> and it's just so brilliantly done um i'll read another bit loosen up for fuck's sake it's no fucking year franco not so much suggested as commanded that was his way people be forced to enjoy themselves if necessary it generally wasn't necessarily they were all frighteningly high it was difficult for stevie to reconcile this world with the one he'd just left now he was aware of them looking at him who were these people what did they want the answer was that they were his friends and they wanted him 
it's the constant dichotomy of feeling like you belong and feeling like this isn't what I want my life to be. Yeah. And then he gets the phone call from Stella who says she loves him and uh, um, and he is so delighted and he goes back to the party feeling like he's got all the love and wisdom of the world and everything is brilliant. Absolutely, which is not how you necessarily think that the story or this <laughs> chapter is going to end because, you know, there's this incredible dramatic tension because you're sitting yeah. there thinking, oh yeah, this is what it was like before mobile phones when you would wait for a oh, phone God, call. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, someone else would pick it up yeah. because it was a landline. And because the wonderful thing about this house party is that I think June answers the phone first right. and, it get, and then Begbie grabs the phone <laughs> and you think, oh my God, what is going to happen now? <laughs> what is going to happen now? Because Begbie's in charge and it's like, you don't want to be having to rely on Begbie to be your Cupid. <laughs> I was really struck and I didn't remember this at all because I think I didn't notice it's the amount of Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah, well, um, it's, it's, it's not... It's not it's Cockney. Right, yeah. Uh. Yeah. It's just rhyming slang, if, like other places have their versions of it. Right. Like, yeah. yeah no, so that, this is not rhyming slang. I don't. I don't know if it's Leith or if it's Edinburgh or yeah, because yeah. I, I it's certainly something that was very familiar to me. All I mean that is one of the great things about this book is all the different phrases and little yeah. catchphrases and little like in jokes that they all have with each other and all the little names and all that. I mean the the that that really adds to the flavour of yeah interesting know. because yeah. I you know I definitely felt as I said at the beginning you know I thought that I felt quite at home in here yeah um, but that's just because I know what jambos are <laughs> <laughs> which like is not you, the same <laughs> yeah like if you if you if you're in a pub. And you're and you're sort of sitting next to like a, a big group of guys and all that, and the way the way they interact and the way the mm. secret in jokes that mm. they all have, it's it's just completely. I mean, Urban Welsh absolutely gets it spot on. I mean, I can understand how some people can say that it's difficult to read, and you know, we've said we didn't find it that difficult because it was voices that you heard all the time all around you so in that sort of conversational way it was the total opposite for us we like sped through the book yeah because it was like having a conversation with people um and I had to sometimes sort of say to myself slow down slow down you're <laughs> you're missing it <laughs> but to me <clears throat> if you wrote this book in standard English you would completely neuter it and to me using phonetic spelling or slang or whatever it's no less a literary device than the stream of consciousness or the other techniques that that, um, that modernists used in the past that display the interior world of a, of a character and my, my, my kind of viewpoint is if it works for Huckleberry Finn or if it works for if it works really well in Brief History of a Seven Killings then it's alright with me <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think Evan Welsh has been asked about this a lot. Yeah, you probably get um, sick of it. <laughs> and um, I came across this quote that he had given to a journalist just last year, actually, oh. um, uh, about what the journalist called Scottish dialect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yes. Um, and Evan um, Welsh said... Quote, I tried to write train spot I tried to write train spotting in standard English, but people weren't talking like that. 
Standard English is very imperialistic, controlled and precise. It is not it's not got a lot of funk or soul to it. <laughs> I wanted something more more performative, like the Gallic storytelling tradition, which is something I wanted wanted to capture. Um, and I think that's a great answer, actually, yeah. because it makes its point about, it, you know, it makes a political point. Um, but also it, it complaces this book in... You, you know, everybody thinks that folk tales and storytelling traditions is a rural thing. Absolutely. Whereas in Trainspotting, he places the history and the lives of people as it's like urban folk tales. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's um, it's really a literary point as well. Yeah. About how people speak. Yeah. So and tell stories. Yeah. Go on yourself, urban. <laughs> Manchester John. Drips drop from leaky roofs, kids paw mangled movie mags, their thumbs reviews, the men in black, Titanic, a sequel to Jurassic Park at this war's longest residence. Slopped atop iron, you're still in seer. Rotting, a forgotten banana. I tell all the nurses he's only 22 and what a hoot we had, four of us, one bedroom, run down hotel on Corporation Street. Bold, and brazen, I wouldn't have it any other way. But this is the third overdose. Things change or you die. My tongue's trapped, just like the oxygen bubbles they think made it to your brain. Hypoxic injury sounds unreal until crassly put, relabeled, cabbaged, crippled beside. Medical diction fails to touch on the warm, tingling bliss of horse trotting up the arm. Feels better than they'd have you think. Right, John boy? So now you're Zimmer framed, shuffling as if walking on constant snow, feet throbbing like frozen hands dunked in boiling water. Pain's easier. It's the emotional burdens of being an ambulance hitchhiker that really get you down. Namely, the shame as a family toss spiky words around when drunk at get-togethers. I leave the hospital, and you... Bleeping like a dying smoke detector, count the number of sorries that I owe you and you owe me and we owe other people until it all goes dizzy. And that poem was Manchester John, which was taken from Michael Peterson's uh, debut collection, Play With Me, that we published by Polygon in 2013. So we're going to talk to Michael and Kevin, who are otherwise known as Noiriki, but because their plans for world domination are uh, so, are um, so they're just very, very busy right now. So we couldn't actually get them in the same room at the same time. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start off asking um, Kevin Williamson about um, his days with Rebel Inc and its connection to Trainspotting and uh, how he met Michael and started Noiriki, and then we're going to go straight ahead into the interview with Michael about how Noiriki has evolved. I suppose you've got to be in the right place at the right time if you want to do something like Rebel Inc, and for it to be successful and manage to do some of the things that you're trying to do. And what I was trying to do back then was basically get involved in a kind of cultural war that was taking place and had been taking place for a number of years, 
it fight fought on two fronts. One, the legitimization of the Scots language and all its variants, and the other was for working class writers to be heard and their voices and writing to be to be widely disseminated to kind of give a voice to places that weren't being represented in literature or particularly in the newspapers or in the mainstream media. And that's where Rebel Inc. came in as a kind of fanzine doing those kind of things, working with Duncan MacLean and writers like Gordon Legg and Barry Graham and Sandy, Sandy Craigie. And we tried to take literature to places that weren't really associated with literature and poetry and events. And we took it around places. We had events down in Muir House. We had events in nightclubs. And Irvin came into this around about 92 when I read his story, First Day of the Edinburgh Festival in the New Writing Scotland, number nine. And both myself and Duncan MacLean were in touch with him at that time, looked, looked at some of his stuff, realised, shit, this is where it's at. He's going to blow this place wide apart. And it kind of snowballed from there. Um, it was a good scene at the time. Uh, it wasn't really a scene as such before the 90s in Edinburgh. It was more Glasgow-orientated, the, the main thrust of Scottish literature. But at that point, there were so many good writers living and working and writing in Edinburgh that it became our base camp. Um, after that, it kind of flourished elsewhere. But it was very exciting at the time, you know, reading writers like Laura Hurd and Tony Davidson as well as like Irvin and Alan Warner and so many other writers who were not yet in book form. It was really exciting. This was this was a it was like a revolution was taking place and we were on the ground floor. I met Michael in Glasgow two thousand and ten. I was doing a poetry reading and he was doing a poetry reading and we just came together, mutual interests, poetry, decided to chat a bit and do a one-off event, see how it went. I wasn't too sure. I'd been out of organising poetry and literature events for quite a number of years since Rebel Inc. finished. But I noticed that Michael had quite a lot of young chaps and chapettes round about him, and they were keen, they had a lot of ideas, they had a bit of a following, and there was a bit of a vibe going among them. And I thought, yeah, if anything's going to make me come out of retirement, this will be it, because I don't want to be just organising stuff for the same old people that I've organised for in the past. So it was a kind of mix. Michael's youthful dynamism, the people he knew, and a little bit of experience on my part, and bringing different aspects to what we could create overnight, because I was into animation and short film and avant-garde. Michael knew a lot of musicians, and we kind of fused the two along with the poetry. It's not a definable ethos. I quite like the term fuzzy logic. It was one that I used with Mike Small when we set up Bella Caledonia. It's not specific. It doesn't have a dogmatic manifesto behind it. Um, we kind of spread it out a little bit, mix and match, throw it together, but at the same time there is a driving ethos underneath it, and it's our personalities, our views, our worldviews, as well as what we engage with culturally. So it's underneath that, and if it's not obvious or transparent on the surface, then that's a good thing because that's the way it should be. Can I just ask about the name? Because I didn't realise until I was reading the mission statement that um, it was 
Paul Rickey? Yeah, so I, there's a whole spin-off on because the name. you assume that it's Edinburgh. Rikki. Yeah, everyone thinks, you know. well, old Rikki, yeah. 75% of the people still call us new Rikki rather than new right. Rikki, but that's fine, <laughs> exists on a mispronunciation, which is, which is all right, you know, I think that breaks down boundaries in literature. Absolutely. Um, so we, we're aware of the fact that a lot of people call us new Rikki, that's fine, this new uh, sort of avant-garde uh, ground baking obstacle burning uh, <laughs> right and the opposite of all old Reiki at the yeah. same time so yeah we're, we're jumping it forward old Reiki was this sort of stench Edinburgh was smelly city in Europe had this stench full of bad irrigation and uh, chimney pots and stuff <laughs> but, and I thought we were supposed to be this new artistic fragrance to wrap that away which sounded super pretentious so we have to have other elements to this there's a homage to Paul Rikki, obviously an integral part of Rebel Link, and it was a sort of late departed at that point in time. Yeah, so I think right. Kevin was jumping into a new enterprise, honouring what Paul Rikki had done to Rebel Link would be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and then also, even though poetry is a, and live literature is at the, at the core of Noi Rikki, me and Kevin spend... I guess a lot of time on our own go to poetry events and reading poetry books we still both love reading books and that's where our programming starts as opposed mm. to the live element which is I think what differentiates us from a lot of the other newer literature nights um, but we spent a lot of time just talking about music and Noi the German crowd rock <laughs> right, inspired right. by Bowie and Brian Eno and really were brought electronic music into like electronic orchestration mm. as opposed to what some people would deem just kind of thumping noise outside of it and we're pioneers from that perspective so we wanted to acknowledge that this was going to be multimedia even though yeah. literature was at its core and literature would always remain at its core with us there but one of our big influences was what music could complement this mm. How do you feel about how much Noiriki has grown since those days in Sandman House? You know, you're, you know, you're opening the whole city of literature, um, city, city of, of culture, culture. Sorry. Well, we're one of the major takeover festivals in that. And I, if you look alongside who's putting on the other ones, it's like Women of the World in the South Bank Centre. Uh, it's Radio One's big weekend. The Turner Prize is the one that finishes the year. See, annoy so Vicky. We're a long, we're a sort of small grassroots organisation, which is now alongside some of the biggest music and arts ventures that the country's got to offer. So, I, it's it's springboarding. I know, and that's that's a, a pretty short space of time as well. What, 2010 to now? Uh, so, first show was 2011. So, we've been putting on events for just over six years. Yeah. Um, and I, a lot of fortunate things happened as we outgrew the Books Trust Summer Hall arrived. Yeah. No one was really putting on shows here at this point in time. There was no cafe, there was no bar, there was only a few tenants. The first show we put on in Summer Hall, we got to run our wee raffle bar all over again. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> so we were illegally selling drinks here too um, to fund the show. Um, so we became. I miss the raffle tickets, and in, 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 me too. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> uh, so we became a big part of like the excitement of people coming to Summer Hall for yeah. the first time, and then the same happened when we then decided that maybe it was time we took this show out of Edinburgh. We met Jim Lambie and Jason McPhail in the Poetry Club over mm. there, and Jim had built this sort of installation for him and Richard Hell from the Voidoids to put a show as. He'd called it the Poetry Club, but didn't have a poetry program planned behind it. So we met him at the same time, who had all these grand ambitions. Of, of making a stamp on this city with this new venue. And that's managed, Glasgow, by the way. That's Glasgow, yeah. <laughs> and managed to get where most of Fringe Bottom One was filmed anyway. Yeah. And managed to get people like Young Fathers and Primal Scream uh, to play.
play the event there for for young fathers. It was one. Of the, it was the first show we put on with them in two fair, early two thirteen. So this was pre uh, Scottish Album of the Year, pre, yeah. pre Mercury Prize, pre International Stardom. Um, and weirdly, they were our two big shows, and obviously Primal Screamer associated with Train Spotting in different ways. Yeah. And Irvin and everything Irvin did a single with Primal Scream, uh, and then Young Fathers became the heartbeat of this new film as well. So yeah. I think what we were tapping into was very much associated with what Kevin was taking out of Rebel Inc. and Irvin was putting out, and there has always been this sort of group feeling mm. about. Uh, Noriki and the type of people that are putting into it, which derives from Rebel Inks, who obviously has that sort of transcendence in the train spot at the mm-hmm. same time. And then, so you've you've moved from Edinburgh to Glasgow. Yeah. You've done a tour of all of, lots of the towns in in, in Scotland, Scotland as well. Yeah, well, that sort of happened through a few different reasons. We started doing shows internationally. Yeah. We went over to America to do a show in New York. Uh, we were booked in to do shows in Japan. Uh, I'd been in Malawi to Lake of Stars, reading and talking about Noriki down there. Kevin has since went over to New Zealand and stuff. So we were getting this sort of international output. And they have to have something to put on the programme. Should we get? So they had scant details about us, but they started using expressions like Scottish cultural ambassadors. And we thought, <laughs> We didn't really sign up for this. But that is what you've become. (laughs) Then you start to question what you do. We proved these shows work in Edinburgh and Glasgow. We proved there was a a first for them, an audience for them. We were selling out bigger and bigger venues. But whether this worked up in the Highlands or on the Mm. Islands or north of the borders, we didn't really have a clue about. So we thought, well, if we're going to do our first ever tour... So much about Noriki up until that point had been taking one show, creating a bespoke lineup that wasn't to be repeated at that point in time, mm. creating new, maybe like thematic works or new commissions which could be unlaunched and really nurturing it and sort of propulsing it and forward for for being this one-off creation. Uh, so it was a really interesting experience and at that point in time it was helping us connect the cultural dots of Scotland mm. at a time when Scotland politically was trying to unify itself and put itself out into the world in that way as well um, and there was brilliant I mean all of the shows were successes and like the lineups were great and the, we, we managed to incorporate like visuals and stories and local performers that turned up to the event into them so it became a, like a swiftly evolving process yeah. um, and then there was one I remember in Sky <laughs> uh, we were doing the Sky Festival then and someone had came along to the show and we saw this brilliant, I think it's an Oscar winning short animation called Trams but you know it's quite racy uh, <laughs> it's quite it's quite lascivious but then it's a love story at the same time uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of hard edge poetry, there's a, a lot of swearing a lot of hard topics covered um, it's not shying away from political issues or people venting spleen within the poems in ways that are sort of definitely executed but I remember one woman having a go at the guy from the Sky Festival on the way out and oh, yeah. I think it was a Saturday show and she went I'll be in confession tomorrow <laughs> talking about what I've seen here at this performance tonight oh. and I overheard that and I just thought bingo that is the- <laughs> <laughs> oh bless her Oh, but at least she came though, so she still. Yeah. She, there, there is a sense of adventure yeah, in that. No, Do you think she needed to confess how much she enjoyed it, <laughs> or just that she was shocked? And then around about this time, that's when you, you know, came along to to Team Polygon as well and started the 
the um, the print collections of the the work that, that had been performed in Noiriki? Yeah, well, we thought for a long time we thought what we were doing was was pretty special, pretty interesting. We thought we'd managed to get some super interesting people to do very different things at mm. these events. Um, I mean, you know, we needed a business card to try and explain <laughs> what we did at events and trying to articulate that. And the best way for us to do that, as sort of lovers of books, was was to put together an anthology to showcase the writers and the musicians we've had in these sort of tangible documents. And we thought we got all these people to do great things for us live. Wouldn't it be brilliant to transfer that uh, to a different platform? Yeah. So there is the whole, I guess, the whole package of what we do, and also reflected in it is the fact that it's we have got Mackers, we've got we've got Liz Lopez, yeah, we've got Jackie Kay, we've got big spoken names. word artists Holly and Luke Wright and people like this. They've all been involved so intricately with the night that they they sort of know the degree of freedom that we're approaching them with. So these aren't just poetry anthologies but the poetry anthologies that break the rules of poetry anthologies and of course each one comes with a downloadable album at the yeah. back of it um, so because the music is such an important part of Nordiki and to hopefully sometimes put on the music and read the book at the same time yeah. or, 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 or listen to them one after the other it gives you an idea of, of the all encompassing nature of what we're trying to put out with these events the launch events for both these books are probably some of my favourite memories in my publishing career. Like Aye. Young Fathers in the first one, I was blown away by their performance at the launch. And the moment where you introduced Jackie Kay, because yeah. she had just been named yeah. Macker, it just really highlighted how important and how how we feel about our artists in Scotland like the real outpouring of love and appreciation when Jackie came up on yeah, the stage and it's a snapshot it's, of the time she's writing poems that are like lashing out against Nigel Farage and like these yeah, are contextual yeah. to time and place and political environment so uh, that's a lot of the thing that Kevin's mentioned before with some of these like go back to the forward anthologies some of them can be quite timeless but with mm. the Noiriki anthologies you can read see. these and you get a snapshot of what's going on within culture in the UK at the moment yeah, and people are engaging with it head on and there have been two within two years and yeah. you can even tell the difference between um, 2015 and 2016 I, right I like, like the, so. the sort of political poems yeah. that are in the gold one have gold a different that. feeling to them yeah um than the ones in the silver. Aye, so I've, we, we, we like, just like the events are snapshots in time, the books have translated into that, and I think we all worked hard to get writers that we knew were given across those messages. We ended our interview with Noiriki uh, by asking Kevin about what's next for the collective after they've been uh, celebrating Hull's City of Culture and um, all the way to Barcelona for the Cosmopolis Festival. Um, where they're appearing as part of a stellar lineup, and uh, this is what he had to say about the future. Looking forward, we can only look forward one step at a time, um, because just the way we structure it in year-long projects, that's the way we do it. And we're, so we're only looking forward twelve months, but within that twelve months, there's a lot of fluidity and creati- creativity we can channel in many different directions, types of events types of art that we want to produce how provocative it wants to be how representative the types of poets so we've got a lot of uh, leeway and on the nights itself that we organise the events a lot of it comes down to the last minute 
that serendipity, that found objects or found happenings or found experiences, we bring those into it. So we can't look too far into the future, but we have a vague plan 12 months in advance. Uh, after that, we'll, we'll have a look again where we're at in 12 months' time and just take it from there. interesting to um, go back to reading Trainspotting again after all this time to a book that we had read previously and a book that we know so well now because of its subsequent fame. Absolutely, yes. And I think it was really interesting to um, go back and think of it um, in two different contexts. In um, one, it's the context of its composition in the early 1990s, um, on one hand, and also on the other, in a sort of broader context of Scottish literary history. And its place now, because it has a place now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And um, I think that, uh, yeah, it was really... I've been thinking a lot about the stories that Edinburgh tells about itself mm. um, and also about how train spotting fits into a sort of uh, broader it's, history of the novel yeah. in Scotland, particularly one, in the 20th century. Yeah, it's now one of the great Edinburgh novels, if you want to. Yeah. I think it's and, fine to look at it in that way. And it's interesting to think about what the others might have been. Um, uh, I found a wee list in uh, a newspaper article that suggested that the, the previous... Edinburgh novels, all the great Edinburgh novels prior to train spotting were um, James Hogg's Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner from 1824, um, and um, then the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Stevenson, and then The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting that both Confessions and Jekyll and Hyde obviously deal with the duality that's mm. very famous in Edinburgh. You know, that whole um, fur coat and knee knickers. Or like, you know, professional by day, demonic by night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and Miss Jean Brodie was all fur coat and Morningside's all fur coat. And then in train spotting, well, we whapped those knickers off. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it needs to be, and it needs to be said, you know, Edinburgh is more than Morningside, you'll have had your tea, and all the sort of famous uh, characteristics that was given to Edinburgh. And Trainspotting, you know, not everybody's a heroin addict in Edinburgh either, but there is a, a, um, a variety of Edinburgh's. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating that Irvin's first story, or the one that first caught Kevin's eye, was the first day of the Edinburgh Festival, yeah. which was uh, published in New Writing, a new, the New Writing Scotland collection, and it's so that's such a great. Um, short episode about how these Edinburghs collide. Yeah, you know, like Edinburgh <laughs> loves to tell its story about international culture. Yeah, like, um, it, yeah, it's a it's a local city. It's a na- it's a national city. It's an international city, and it, it is outward looking, but it also can be um, parochial and inward. And the relationship Edinburgh has with the festival in itself is interesting. <laughs> the, the relationship that Edinburgh residents have with the festival, yeah. particularly in the age of Airbnb. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and, um, you know, this novel really... um, And I think that what Kevin was saying about Rebel Rebel Inc. um, 
uh, starting in Glasgow or there being a real clear scene in Glasgow that maybe Rebel Inc. brought to Edinburgh? Well, um, you know, Scottish literature had focused on Well, Glasgow, Glasgow. literature... Its urban literature did allow itself to have a conversation with um, its darker elements. Yes. That maybe in the, the Edinburgh literature wasn't allowing itself until Trainspotting. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, with the, the rise in crime fiction, um, Edinburgh's underbelly is... Um, Exposed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ian Rankin. <laughs> <laughs> but but Trainspotting was really the, 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 the book that... Um, brought working class life in Edinburgh into the forefront yeah. of, of Scottish culture too. Representation matters and um Irvin did that for for a whole swathe of Edinburgh that's often ignored. So um yeah, which brings us on to, you know, the what I see as uh the major difference between uh Scotland in 1992-1993 when train spotting was published um and Scotland in 2017, you know, that's 25 years later <laughs> yeah. and even in the 90s, by the end of the 1990s, by the end of that decade, Scotland had, you know, a reconvened parliament. Mm. Even though there's still bits of the book that seem particularly prescient nowadays it was definitely a snapshot of early 90s Edinburgh where there was a lot of anger and inwardness and zero confidence in our abilities um, as an international nation you know we all know of the famous it's shite being Scottish speech I don't even have to read that out, just saying that out loud. We all know what that means. And nowadays you 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 see that in the film or you read it in the book. And it doesn't feel as familiar. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about what Kathleen Jamie said when she accepted her prize for uh, the Book of the Year yeah, at the Saltire yeah, Awards yeah, yeah. Uh, just before Christmas. And um, she said how she's... Blown, has been blown away in recent years by um, the changes in this country and how exciting it is to be part of it. Mm. And I think that um, an emerging cultural comfort, confidence is key to yeah. that. And yeah, and it's and it is something to be celebrated. Yeah. Whatever you think about the politics and of Scotland today, um, the one thing that you you can acknowledge is that the best art is always going to reflect the times that you live in. And Trainspotting did that for the 90s. Yes. And And I think that one of the things that is interesting to contrast with that is some of the poems that are in the Noiriki collections, you Mm. know, which are so current and up to the moment. Yeah. I think some of the poems that came after the independence referendum did really palpably show and express disappointment. Mm. But we should have these conversations with ourselves. and And our art would be doing us a disservice if we if it wasn't addressing these conversations with ourselves absolutely so you know and doing it in an, in dynamic and exciting ways yeah so if you know if Renton said it's shite being Scottish <laughs> in 1992 and it became a sort of rallying cry um to Scotland then maybe we need another one and it's up to the artists now to right. to make what the new rallying cry is Next month, we'll be going back to the 17th century uh, to the very first woman ever published in Scotland. Uh, Her name is Elizabeth Melville, and um, her first 
published work was a poem called Ain Godly Dream. And we will be uh, inviting Polygon author and historical novelist Shirley Mackay to discuss uh, this 17th century poem with us. Join us then. So, before we leave, we are going to spoil you with some as yet unpublished um, poems from Michael Peterson. A little taster of something to come. Which, you know, if you, want, if you prefer your poem on the printed page, then, you know, keep your eye out for August and September when a new collection called Oyster is coming your way. Take it away, Michael. Fancy dress for fancy folks. We, us pair, in beautiful wigs, shimmy through the busy streets, our moon faces full as Christmas bellies, our coy curling grins greet friends and strangers. Hello, and very, very, merry, nice and soon, yes, yes, we get home, exhausted. Unclip our smiles, they fall to the floor with the heavy thud of metal chains. An evening wraps us, wrapped in its heft with a new fur coat. We let our wigs slip from our scalps, peel open and undress. Think the first peak of banana between skin looks right rough, you'd think, what's underneath until you touched it, treated to a cheek rub. Such secrets we keep. Nearly naked, all our little aerials ready to receive the body, its treacle, its gloss, mission control. They need not be bright as beach life, just need a good scour of sand, sea, salt and sun. Fix your bones to mine, become a coital bow, it is Christmas Eve and us in wigs and high heels, clogs, frocks and frowns are now in none. Us in public are now in private, so come, let us strip together forever. Eat snow, warn each other to enjoy it for this hot, fleshy love in the bigger picture holds us only for seconds, like a snowflake on the tongue. Deep, deep down is a motion and a yoke, is a gluttony, a sweet suit. My neck, tight and craned, is your open thighs, honeyed wetland, summer rain. Puddling, now rivering, towards my begging tongue. Shh, she's unhooked herself, so under covers is a purring, a hush zoom, is singing carols, is blood quickening, is yelling like riding roller coasters, cheeks full strawberry flush, is shh. Is deep, deep down. When you came to me, Grez sur Leon, we never rode the boat downstream. I couldn't even find it. Never had them bicycles out, filled their baskets or skinny dipped in the Gelid River. I took you walking down a motorway. Only restaurant and tune was shut was also the bar, nightlife to boot. Our prize-winning baker went away on sojourn, day of your arrival, and I'd been sending teasing snaps of his baguettes and sugared tarts. 
that we French fancy never had a crumb of it. The shower blocked. It overflowed. You stood in shit in the moors. Don mansion house, festooned in festive decor, garish as you've ever seen, you never saw. It rained, poured, the air frosted, nipped like a bairn's pinch. The puckish kid I was warring with never showed his ruddy faith, pity, mert. We never fucked in the forest in those tube socks I lionised. There's a cum stain on your new silk dress. I fell asleep on the final night, though you were feeling chatty. All that happened and never happened when you came for me in Grèce sur Lyon. But let me tell you this. You made the wind seem safter, the giant auburn leaves glow, the tumbling stream turned susurrus, so more birdsong I know. We kiss for hours, and it felt like hardly getting started was great. Your hands, your tongue, the way they run was great. And I'm pretty sure we fell in love some. Love begins to balance things out, or near enough for new. And though the baker and the restaurateur reopened in sly, scheming unison, and town's Christmas lights beamed out as awe sung carols of joy and grace, it was never better, never, not ever, than you here in their place. 